This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. Thanks for joining us. And now here's the podcast. Hello and welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by Bridge Bio, a biotech company that focuses on developing treatments for rare diseases. I'm your host, Mandy Rorig, a member of the patient advocacy team, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy. Today, David speaks with Lacey, who lives with LGMD2I, also known as limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2I. Hi, David. How are you? Hi, Mandy. I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to today's episode and to seeing Lacey again. We've met before and she's really lovely. Her experience is really something and I'm looking forward for people to hear about it. But before we speak to Lacey, I'm going to ask my colleague uh, and longtime friend, Anna Wade, to explain limb girdle muscular dystrophy to us. Anna and I have been working together for over five years and she's a wicked smart scientist, as we say in Massachusetts, or wicked smart. She's now the chief operating officer of ML Bio Solutions, which is the Bridge Bio affiliate that is working on developing a treatment for limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Hi, Anna. Hi, David. Nice to be here. I've been thinking that uh, for people who are not familiar with limb girdle muscular dystrophy, as I was not familiar not that long ago, maybe we could start with just what does it mean for a person to have muscular dystrophy? Sure. So muscular dystrophy are actually a sort of group of diseases which are characterized by progressive weakness and degeneration of skeletal muscles. And so skeletal muscles are those that are responsible for voluntary movement. Uh, So you can think about that as like your leg, your arm muscles, your biceps and the sort of large muscles in your legs. And in the case of limb girdle muscular dystrophy, it's the limb girdle muscles. Those are the sort of big muscles at the top of your limbs. So you can think about it as your shoulders and your pelvic girdle, hence the name limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Um, thank you. And what what causes the muscles to not work? So there's some kind of instability in the muscle Mm -hmm. cells. So these defects in the muscle cells result in ineffective repair mechanisms so that those muscles sort of break down over time as they're being used. So normal muscles are always rebuilding themselves after Mm -hmm. you do exercise just with normal use. And in these conditions, there are um, defects in the system which prevent this sort of continuous rebuilding. And that's different in different forms of muscular dystrophy. What's very interesting and the huge advance that's been made scientifically in the past sort of 10 or 20 years is that these conditions are being better understood in terms of their genetic causes. And that helps us understand why these these conditions are different. We're going to be speaking to Lacey, and we know that she's been diagnosed with limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i. So what does the type 2i mean there? So the type 2i is the category name for limb girdle muscular dystrophy, which is caused by mutations in a gene. And in the case of LGND2i, the gene doesn't work properly and it's not performing its normal role in making normal alpha dystroglycan. Mm. Little too much information, but this protein is normally fully functioning. It requires multiple enzymes to have its function on the muscle membrane as a shock absorber. 
without the enzyme, the muscle membrane doesn't repair. And so over time, what happens is you get accumulating damage in the muscle and the muscle will progressively become weaker. So let me just see if I could restate that. Because of a gene that is not functioning correctly, the chemical process to repair muscles isn't really working. So then muscles land up being damaged. Muscles need repair whenever they're used strenuously, right? Right. And the lack of repair then results in muscles that don't function as well. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right, David. From the perspective of someone living with a condition, how is it first noticed? Uh, We know it's a genetic condition, but I don't think it's something that is evident in infants, for example. How people present is actually very variable. And some people are affected when they're quite young, maybe sort of around five, and then other people are presenting more in their sort of teen years. So you often hear that like at the beginning, the first things that people are noticing is they're sort of getting tired more quickly, either when they're walking a lot or when they're climbing stairs. But over time, it sort of progresses so that even sort of climbing just a few steps may become increasingly difficult. Kids, they might present to doctors this way. Then when they go into a clinic, they'll have um, very high creatine kinase levels, which is a marker in the blood of your muscles are breaking down a lot. And then over time, the, the condition continues to progress. So that some people needing to rely on use of a wheelchair. I think that I've heard the stories of some people with LGMD2I talking about after their diagnosis, thinking back to their uh, level of activity and when they were involved in athletic events that they found that they were slower or got tired more easily. And sometimes their families said that they were lazy because they were not as active as siblings and other children. So uh, is that a common occurrence? Yeah, absolutely. We've heard that again and again. Yeah. So Anna, um, LGMD2I, it's really limiting for a person who's experiencing it, and it's progressive. The damage to muscles isn't repaired. So what kind of treatments have shown to be helpful for people with LGMD2I? So currently there are no um, approved therapies specific for LGMD2I. Um, and really it's the treatments that are available are more focused on I would say symptomatic management, and there isn't really anything that's addressing the underlying cause of disease or um, halting progression. And I think you really nicely summarized how significant the impact of this condition is. There is sort of this gradual loss of independence over time, and this is significant burden to both the patient and to the Mm. caregivers. And the kind of things that we often think would be helpful to someone with muscle weakness, like more exercise, are not so good if you exercise enough to damage your muscles, which I don't think takes that much exercise, then you're not going to have repair and there could be long-term consequences. Um, I know that BridgeBio and MLBio are working on developing a treatment, and I wonder if there's a way to say what the direction of the work is without being too complicated, because I know it's a very complicated subject. BridgeBio is currently developing a molecule and what that molecule is attempting to do is to help sort of correct this biochemical defect. So the molecule is providing additional and excess sort of the fuel for the enzyme in the hope that we can increase just what's needed in the muscles. Well, there's a real need there and we all wish you great success in this development program. So please express our appreciation to all of your colleagues as this community really is in need of an effective treatment. 
I will, David. Thanks so much. Hopefully with understanding comes progress. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to introduce Lacey. Lacey and I were together a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco when she spoke to the staff at Bridge Bio about living with limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Actually, it was a program about caregivers and her husband, Stuart, did most of the talking, but Lacey was there to keep him honest and also demonstrated what a lovely person you are, Lacey. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Lacey, you're living with limb girdle muscular dystrophy, type 2i. Yes. And... We sometimes call that LGMD2I. Yes. What do you recall as being the first moment that you realized there was something going on? I think the first thing I noticed going on was I couldn't keep up with my peers. I was in sports and I distinctly remember in softball, I kept being told to try harder, run faster, um, and then it continued in PE. We had to run the mile. And I was always last. And I was always trying to find somebody who would speed walk it with me because running was was too hard. And Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it, except I felt lazy because that was the word I kept hearing. I just needed to try harder, work harder at it. And so I truly believed I was lazy. Wow. So you were called lazy by someone else. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, Yes. Unfortunately, my PE teacher, my softball coach, my parents, unfortunately, because I looked the same. And so there really wasn't an explanation for why I wasn't keeping up with my peers. At about what age do you think this was? Um. I'm going to say 10, 9 and 10. And then I was running in junior high. We had to do a relay race. And I just remember being panicked and stressed when they were passing that baton to me. And I was running as fast as I could. And in my mind, I'm like really doing a good job. Uh, But to the observer, I really wasn't going that fast. What ended up happening was my muscles contracted. And I fell to the ground and I could not get back up. So both of my legs were just hard as rocks. And a teacher had to come carry me off of the field. They still had no idea what was wrong. I believe that is when my mom first realized, oh, I wonder if something's going on here. Yeah. So this was more significant and severe. Prior to this incident at age 11, you were a slow runner and your parents and teachers, et cetera, thought that you were being lazy or you weren't trying hard enough. But falling and not being able to get up, et cetera, that seemed to indicate that there was something more going on. Yeah, they did. and But there wasn't a conversation about it. So in my mind, I still kept believing the same thing that I'm hypochondriac or I'm lazy. Um, and there wasn't really anybody like me. So I had nothing to compare it to. After this incident, when you fell, did your parents take you to the doctor or try to find out what had happened? No. The only recollection I have of going to the doctor was when I had to get my physicals to do sports. I saw one doctor who thought something may be wrong with my hips, but I have no memory of ever seeing a doctor for muscular dystrophy or for my muscles. Or mm. wow. 
I'm kind of shocked, Lacey, because an 11-year-old should not, well, it's unusual to fall, but it does happen. But then an 11-year-old just gets up and moves and being unable to move, it must have been very scary for you. Reflecting back now, being a parent, I cannot believe. I have a mom, a stepdad, a dad and a stepmom, and nobody took me to the doctor. They had a lot of things going on in their lives. Um, it still astonishes me. I don't have a relationship with either set of parents. I finally went to the doctor Oh gosh, it was 15. And by that point, I'm falling all the time. Stairs are a struggle. I had played the piano. Um, my mom said she noticed that it sounded differently. I was missing notes. Uh, I went to the doctor, still had no idea why. And they took the blood test, mm. which showed high levels of um, creatinine. And then they did the test where they put yeah. needles into the muscle and give it a shock and to see how well my muscles are responding. And I guess that didn't turn out well. Again, mm -hmm. was not communicated to me. And at this time, I'm 15. I'm just so into partying and being with my friends. And I didn't ask too mm -hmm. many questions. Keep in mind, in my heart and brain, I literally thought yeah. that I was lazy. So I went to the hospital under general anesthesia, and they did a muscle biopsy. I wasn't told why. I received a call about a month or so later, which I wasn't expecting. I just answered the phone, and he told me over the phone, I'm 16, uh, and tells me, you know, he's sorry to say mm -hmm. I have muscular dystrophy. And I don't know what that is. The only thing I could wrap my head around were Jerry's kids. And that was the first visual that came into my head. Yes. What was the visual like from Jerry's kids, just for any of our listeners who never witnessed that program? It, it was kids that were younger than me in wheelchairs, parents that were very sad, a lot of crying, raising money, but I didn't know why, but I knew it was bad. So this was a phenomenon that went on for many years. The comedian Jerry Lewis would do a, a telethon where he yeah. would appeal to yeah. raise money for muscular dystrophy. And in order to raise money, they showed the many difficulties and challenges of living with muscular dystrophy. And you're 16, yeah. you get a phone call and the physician tells a 16-year-old the diagnosis of muscular dystrophy. That must have just been awful. You know, people say that there are times in your lives where everything just turns upside down or the rug is pulled out from under you. Yeah. Understatement. I can tell you exactly where I was, what was happening outside. It was so traumatic for me. And I didn't know what to do. My first question to the doctor was, can I have children? Can I still have children? And he said, no. And I asked, am I going to be able to feel my legs? Because the vision in my head were of these children in wheelchairs. And I had just assumed that meant they couldn't feel their legs. He explained I'd still be able to feel. And then I just sat there and then I screamed yeah. for my mom to pick up the phone, uh, which she did. And then I um, ran out of my room and my older sister happened to be visiting and I embraced her and I was just bawling and she had no idea what was going mm -hmm. on. But I'm so thankful for her because she just let me weep. I appreciate you bringing us back to that moment, but I just can only imagine how terrible that was. It's shocking that a physician would inform yeah. a 16-year-old in that manner 
and not talk to your parents first or not bring you in to explain what this was all about? No, it it's unreal. We weren't great communicators in my family. Um, my mom and I have still really never talked about it, literally, since that day. Um, she kind of stayed upstairs in her room and I stayed downstairs and my stepdad had come home from work and I think my mother explained to him what happened. And he came into my room with no words and held me. And that is just such a beautiful memory for me. And so we just went on like, you know, no big deal. <laughs> you just continued living. The physician didn't give you any guidance as to what you should do or... He may have to my mom, um, but it wasn't talked about to me in that we didn't have the internet. Mm -hmm. You know, you had to go downtown to go to the main library to get information. I did have a, mm -hmm. an appointment with a neurologist and there were a bunch of people in the room and I was sitting in a chair. You know, it's like being poked and prodded. Um, they're doing muscle testing and they're having me walk back and forth in the room and they're all taking notes. And again, I just was like, okay, I'm doing as I'm told. And I didn't understand the big picture. And I was still in denial. I'm not a child. I'm not in a wheelchair. I must be doing something right. Or maybe they have the diagnosis wrong. Mm -hmm. Or again, I had no idea mm -hmm. that it was a progressive disease throughout my entire life. So they poked and prodded you. I'm guessing they were teaching their students and interns what limb girdle muscular dystrophy is like, but they really weren't communicating with you about their findings or what to expect or what to do. No, no, they weren't. And your family members were not really communicating about it either. Mm, you were no. really left, left on your own with it. Lizzie. Yeah, I was. And I believe that because of the traumatic news, my brain did all it could to protect me. And I didn't even acknowledge. I didn't let people know. I just kept living like I never received the phone call. So bring us forward, you know, 16, 17, graduating high school. What was your life like and what were your next steps? Uh, I graduated when I was 17. And at that point, I was doing what they call the Running Start program, where I was going to Gonzaga University. While in high school, I had gotten into Western, and I I just could not wait yeah. to to move out. So I was seventeen, and I moved out the day after I graduated. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, I started college and didn't understand that uh, Western uh -huh. University is on a hill. <laughs> 98 stairs from my dorm room to one of my classes. Again, I'm in denial and can't figure out why I can't walk up these darn stairs mm -hmm. and did my best to make it work for as long as I could. Uh, my legs kept going into contractions. They were hard as rocks where I couldn't walk again. I continued an unhealthy pattern of denial. Mm -hmm. And really put my yeah. physical and emotional body through so much because of the denial, trying to be like everybody else. Uh -huh. So I didn't last at Western, gosh, more than a year. I realized I needed to go to a smaller, flat type of a college. So I transferred to a community college. Yeah. And boy, that was perfect for me because the classes are just right next to each other. And then I decided I wanted to get my real estate license at about 18 and ended up meeting my husband in one of the real estate offices I was working really? in. 
It's so silly looking back, David, because why would I get my real estate license when I have a progressive disease? I most likely would not be able to get into these homes in the next five years. But I refused to accept that fact. And so, again, I kept living like I could do anything. Well, Lacey, nobody really told you what to expect either. You were pretty much on your own with this. You knew you had the diagnosis and you knew that it was hard to walk steps. But it doesn't sound like anyone really gave you any sense of what to expect in the future. No, other than I couldn't have children. And I for sure was going to prove them wrong on that. So it was in the real estate office that you met Stuart. You were pretty young. You got your license at 18. So Yeah, I met Stuart actually when I was 20. I liked how he said Mm -hmm. it wasn't love at first sight. Yet we were married four months later. (laughs) By my second date, he told me, you know, he was in love with me. And it was it was mutual. It was it was the craziest thing. It was love at first sight, huh? It was love at first sight. So you meet Stuart. It's love at first sight. Tell us what your thinking was like. Do I tell him about this thing? You know, when did the idea of letting Stuart know come to you? I told Stuart it was very casual, by the way, just so you know. And it was after he told me he had loved me and there wasn't a discussion. It was, oh, okay. We both were in La La Land and... <laughs> you probably could have told him that you were an axe murderer and he would have you know, not paid attention to it. Yeah, <laughs> and he would have believed it too. But he would say, oh, um, that's okay because he was so in love, huh? I, whatever, honey, I love you. Yeah. Well, he had a um, child um, from a previous marriage and I was so clear, David, on what I wanted in life Mm -hmm. at that time. And marriage was not in the cards. I really wanted to continue my education. I was living by myself, which I just loved. And I was very clear that I was not going to marry a man who had children or who had been previously married because I grew up having to go back and forth between parents and it was awful and so I had made all these clear boundaries for myself and Mm -hmm. which are ridiculous um looking back but I'm gonna guess that you were in la la land and you then overlooked that Stuart didn't meet your criteria in that regard correct (laughs) Stuart and I are, are are 15 years apart so his daughter and I are 10 years apart So I met his daughter and I just, I adored her. What was I, 20? (laughs) Instant mom. And um, Uh I can do this. This isn't going to be a problem. So La La Land Uh is correct. And first date was in October and we were married the first week of February. Wow. So you swept each other off your feet. You did talk about having limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Um, Just you went forward. Yeah. Jumped in both feet. And um, nice story. You know, David, it yeah. is a great story, but I wouldn't recommend it. I would recommend getting to know somebody maybe before you marry them for your life. We did it kind of backwards. We didn't really know each other, mm-hmm. and we've spent the last 30 years getting to know each other. Well, and thank goodness it's worked out. Oh, um, yes. Well, I met Stuart. He's a pretty nice guy. and Yeah, and counseling, lots of counseling. <laughs> Good. So you get married. Instant mom, you still have limb girdle muscular dystrophy. So what would you say is the next part of the story? Uh, well, I was pregnant. Um, oh, gosh. Stuart was was in the middle 
of building a home just for him and his daughter, believing that he is never going to get married again. So he's building a kind of a bachelor house when he meets me, almost completed. So he takes me to his house. And of course, there's a bunch of stairs, you know, right after we got married, I'm pregnant. And and as my pregnancy continues, the stairs are becoming harder and harder for me to get up. And poor Stuart, he's still finishing the house. And he knows it's like, oh, gosh, we're gonna have to sell this house. Um, We built banisters on each side of the stairs that I could kind of pull myself up. But as the pregnancy continued, the weaker I got, Uh, we ended up having to sell that house and figure something else out. where like a big rambler where we didn't have the stairs. Mm -hmm. And I grew up, a rambler was a type of car. So, and I don't think you were living in a car. So yes. What what kind of house is a rambler? Uh, No stairs, flat in New England, in, we would call that a ranch house. Oh, we, in urban areas in Massachusetts, let me just say there are no ranches with animals and horses, but there are a lot of ranch houses that have no stairs, so that are on one level. What do you call a house then with the animals? Like, because that to me is a ranch. We read about them in the book. Lately, <laughs> okay. At old McDonald, a rambler is a house on one level, which is would be much more suitable for someone who has difficulty walking stairs. Correct. And in both of our brains, that's all we needed. The wheelchair, none of that entered our minds. It was, I just am having difficulty walking stairs. So this will be our forever home, building a one-story home. And Lacey, you became pregnant. You said that you became weaker and had more trouble with the stairs. Did your obstetrician give you any special treatment or care for having limb girdle muscular dystrophy in pregnancy or talk to you about delivery? No. Actually, he had never had a patient with muscular dystrophy. I had to explain what limb girdle muscular dystrophy mm. was, um, how I wanted to deliver the baby. I knew uh-huh. it would not be a good idea uh-huh. to have a C-section. Uh, I knew that would affect my core muscles and I needed to have a vaginal birth. So that's what I told my doctor Mm -hmm. that no matter what, that had to happen. And um, that's what I did. It was a very difficult birth. Just remembering that the doctor who diagnosed you said you would never be able to have children. So you showed them wrong. Yes. It didn't ever occur to me that I wasn't going to show him wrong. I just have that personality. Tell me I can't do something and I'll do it. Just to show you that you're wrong. (laughs) I love that. How many children do you have? So um, I have my stepdaughter, who to me is my, gosh, she's my daughter, my eldest. I birthed uh, two, adopted my niece. Uh So at that point I had four and then went on to adopt our son and our other daughter. So we have six. We have six children. So you didn't just show the doctor that he was wrong. You showed him and then you showed him some more and then you showed him a few more times. Yeah. And at that point, I wasn't even thinking about the doctor. I got on to other, you know, uh, individuals who said, can't be a foster parent if you're disabled. You can't be adopting children if you're disabled. And I'm like, yes, I actually can. And I'm going to. I have to say, I really admire you for adopting both your niece and other kids who clearly needed the kind of home that you're providing. 
Thank you. And I feel bad for Stuart <laughs> because when we got married, it was like he's done having children. And it was very important to me that I have um, a bigger family, mm -hmm. so much so that, you know, he's ready to get the vasectomy. And I said, well, can I have it in writing that I get to adopt children because I want a bigger family? You know, it was real difficult. Uh, yeah. Bless his soul. He, has he come around to a larger family idea? I mean, he has. He's an amazing father. These kids are so lucky to have him. He has come around, but we would have two more children right now. We had had these children that we were fostering for almost three years. I've had them since they were three, and they were our kids. And um, Stuart mm -hmm. said, no, we just can't. He could not do one more. And he made the right decision for the kids and for us, but it was awful. I just can only imagine how terrible that was. No, I've done a lot of damage, too. What do you mean? Well, I'm I'm just... I've had so many concussions. <laughs> I'm getting weaker. I wouldn't accept the fact, or maybe I just didn't care that with each pregnancy, I was going to accelerate the disease. You lived through two pregnancies and childbirths, and you just said that you feel like your pregnancies accelerated the limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Can you tell us more about that? Stuart and I noticed a big difference. After the birth of Savannah, I didn't bounce back. The difficulty of walking upstairs kept getting worse and I kept falling. Uh, even when I was pregnant with her, my gosh, I was falling and that was very scary. I kept thinking I was injuring her. So I had Savannah and I noticed it was difficult to walk around while holding her. But I didn't acknowledge it. I kept thinking it's just temporary. I got pregnant with our um, second child two years later, and I didn't acknowledge that I hadn't bounced back from my first child. Um, mm -hmm. With the second one, it really affected my hips. And with limb girdle, it starts in your hips. I couldn't get off of a toilet. And I kept thinking, oh, it's just because I have this added weight. Um, it's going to get better. And it didn't. I didn't take the time to put pieces together because I had three daughters nursing. I was just full mm -hmm. into motherhood and being a wife. And we had our niece living with us at that time and starting the process to adopt her. And it yeah. just, our lives have been so busy, or maybe I've made them mm -hmm. that way so that I wouldn't have to acknowledge the disability and what was happening to my body. Yeah. You've done well by not making your illness or related disability a big part of your life. You've mostly focused on living your life and on motherhood and parenthood. Yeah, it was too scary. It was too scary to acknowledge uh, that piece of my life. And I was worried that if I opened that door, I didn't know what was going to be behind yeah. it. And therefore, let's just keep it closed. With your two pregnancies, your condition worsened. What happened with your condition? How much change was there? And I know that you use a wheelchair now at least some of the time. So if you could just talk us through what happened with your condition. Um, well, at that point, I had four girls and... It was difficult for me to get from one end of the house where our bedroom was to the other end of the house where the living room was. I would become winded. 
I would be grabbing onto furniture to rest. And I remember being so thankful that the kids were in strollers, that I could hold onto a stroller whenever we went out. Um, it was so much easier for me to walk holding onto this stroller. Gosh, when Ireland, our younger daughter, started to progress out of the stroller, that's mm. when I really noticed I did not have the stability I needed. I would be falling over. Um, when Savannah became a kindergartner, I noticed I needed assistance. I needed to face the facts that I needed to use something. I wanted to be like the other parents, and uh, they were going to go on a field trip. And I really wanted to go to this pumpkin farm. Uh, a walker wasn't going to help and a cane wasn't going to help. I needed to use a scooter. And that was a huge shift in my life. Yeah. And you mean a, the kind of scooter that has a seat and it's just a bit more narrow than a wheelchair and a bit easier to get on and off. Yeah, it was three wheels. Uh, people use them to grocery shop. Yeah, and it was the first time I ever considered using a scooter, but it was only going to be for yeah. field trips. I made all these rules around the scooter and that I would never be in a wheelchair. That's never going to be me. Well, determination got you very, very far, Lacey. Made you a mother. It got you to college. Everything that perhaps some doctors thought you were not going to be able to do, but doesn't really take away the progression of the illness. No. So the progression of the illness seemed to accelerate. You know, at this point, my kids are in grade school. I have yet to meet anybody that has limb girdle muscular dystrophy. It actually wasn't until 2007 that I received the diagnosis of limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i. Uh, they have a new name for it. It's R9. And the, I received the phone call, another phone call wow. uh, to give me the diagnosis. And at first I was, I was so happy that, oh, wow, now we know for sure what I have, what is wrong, how I got this. But it came with terrifying news again. Mm -hmm. Now I needed to go get my heart checked right away and have a breathing test done because it's going to be affecting my diaphragm and my heart. Mm -hmm. And this time around, thank God we had the internet. Mm -hmm. After being scared, not knowing, oh my God, I have mm -hmm. four kids. I need to understand what this means. I dove into the internet. I got all the information I could um, and realized how difficult it mm -hmm. was trying to put the pieces together for myself and what do other people do who get these calls? Are there other people who get these calls? And that's when mm. I um, got on Facebook and mm. started my um, the Limb Girdle Muscular Dystrophy Type 2i Facebook group. And I bought the domain name for the Limb Girdle Muscular Dystrophy Type 2i and started my own webpage. Mm. And I just went full speed ahead. And that was life-changing for me because then I got to meet others around the world. Mm -hmm started going to a um, natural history study in Iowa where we'd have a yearly conference. My group kept growing and growing. It was just amazing. It became a really um, positive in my life. The disease was a positive, not a negative anymore. Mm -hmm. So while I would love to hear more about your development as an advocate for people living with 2i, I'd like to know about motherhood for you and 
Let's start with the fact that you knew very clearly that you wanted to be a mother very early in life. Yeah, I did. You know, I just had that yearning from a very young age, a nurturing, wanting my own family. And when I started, when I, Mm -hmm. that feeling, you know, David, you have kids and I I can imagine you felt this way when you first saw your children too. It's like your, your life changes. It's can't imagine your life without these little individuals. Absolutely. I felt when my first child was born that I had really two hearts and I had never known that before, but the second one just started started beating when he was born. Yeah. And I used the the visual of it's my heart walking outside my body. My daughters have my heart and they're just it's inside and outside, you know? And for those who don't have kids, it's very difficult to describe what that feeling is like. And it's a different kind of love. Well, love gets multiplied a lot. Yeah. I do feel like I have extensions of myself that I actually see now that they're adults. It's yeah. like, whoa. <laughs> um, but motherhood means so much to me. I wasn't the kind of mom that when my kids moved out, I sat and cried or anything. I'm a strong believer in spread those wings, (laughs) but I felt a big hole in my heart. Like, but I'm not done being a mom. Um, And that's when I decided to become a foster mom and realized I could keep mothering. There were so many kids out there that needed a mom and it was a different type of mothering. It wasn't the same, but boy, it's been a beautiful, beautiful experience. Having um, different children come into our, our home who are in trauma, something horrible has just happened to them. And But just to provide that stability for them and to watch what happens mm. when you do that for another individual, yeah. it's really quite beautiful. Lacey, it seems like you've just had an excess of love in your heart and even after your kids grew up, you realized that you still had more. Love needs an object. You know, love in your heart without someone to love isn't enough. So. Is that what it is, David? Because I could never put my finger quite on that. I don't know. I think it's not love until you love someone. And the feeling of loving is, of course, being loved is really good, but loving. And you know, I'm more comfortable with loving than being loved. Thank you, David, for that. I now understand myself a little better. (laughs) Truly. Also, has always felt like, um, as a human, Mm -hmm. what are we doing? (laughs) You know, look outside. There are so many in need children, and it's our responsibility to help another. Children in need of love, like with a love deficit, clearly. A friend of mine made this needlepoint for me, and it's framed when you walk into my house. The love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. See, now you have my voice breaking, Amy. You better not put this in the podcast. Love isn't love till it's given away. Thanks, David. You're making me cry. (laughs) We're having a cry fest. Is this how the podcast is billed as a cry fest? Just title it Cry Fest. (laughs) The first time I fully recognized having a disability and being a parent It was about two and a half years ago, believe it or not, because I actually had to do that. I had to let two of my kids go 
because of my disability, because I wouldn't be able to raise them. Um, They were much younger, and it was because of the disability. I still haven't come to terms with that. I still carry a lot of guilt and um, a brother and sister, and they are, um, it's actually quite a beautiful, beautiful story. A distant relative adopted them, and she and her husband had been married for quite some time and couldn't have children, and they are just a beautiful family, um, and I still get to see these two kiddos. But there's part of me that feels like I hate to use this word, but abandoned them, that I had to abandon them because of my disease. On the outside, it looks like, oh, everything worked out beautifully. I just said it myself. (laughs) But on the inside, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like I'm pretty angry with my disease. It's not what you really wanted. And it's great that it had a really good outcome, but it's not how you wanted it to be. And for someone who has been so successful at ignoring her condition for so long or keeping it out of mind, all of a sudden it reared up and made itself a real obstacle and hit you where it hurts the most, which is limiting how much you can mother and how much you can love. It's beautifully put. Thank you, David. That's exactly right. So before you said that, I was thinking, like, what advice would you give to other women who are living with a disabling condition and are not sure they wanted to take the risk of having children? And I guess I still want to ask you, you've proven your doctors wrong. You've given birth to two daughters. You've adopted other children. You've taken in foster kids. You've had to let two go. All in all, what would you say to a young woman who's living with 2i or multiple sclerosis or other disabling conditions where they may be getting the advice to not have children, what would you tell them? Look within. If you want, go with your intuition. If if you want to have kids, you have kids. If you physically cannot have kids, foster, adopt. But do not ever let a disease or a doctor's advice stop you from doing what you know is true for you, what you want to do. I have met people with 2i who have chosen not to have children, and that's great for them. Um, But I've also met people who wanted to have kids and who didn't because of the doctor's advice out of fear. And that breaks my heart. Lacey, that is really good advice. I'm going to say it in a different way is... If in your heart you want to have children and you're advised, oh, maybe you shouldn't because of your condition, that means that the condition wins. I mean, your story of being successful is that you basically ignored 2i and went ahead with your life. And I'd say it's worked out very well for you, that strategy. Thank you. I have actually looked at it quite differently that I could have been more successful in my life if I would have worked with my 2i. Because what I ended up doing, that I had this this secret to don't tell anybody, um, and I ended up feeling shame all this time. And so I don't know if it was a good thing. Um, I definitely look at 2i as positive as part of me because I would not be the person I am today without it. Clearly, Lacey did not allow LGMD2I to define her life. She was able to become a mother, have a full career. And like she said, it was a part of her and it's a part of who she is. 
I think, however, even though she was able to and is able to continue to live this full life, it did stop her, right? She reflected on how she was unable to adopt those two foster children that she fell deeply in love with. Um, Regardless of her ability, she has tremendous capacity for love, but she was stopped in her tracks by this disease. No matter how hard she tried, how hard she adapted, which I guess, David, doesn't that tell us that there's still a need in this condition, even for people like Lacey who have the ability to overcome and overcome again, they still need treatment options. They still need more. Mindy, I really agree. Lacey has accomplished so much, but it was the LGMD2I which stopped her from living the life that she really wanted to live. But she has shown an enormous capacity to do what she wants with life, despite the limitations of her condition. But I'd like to see that her experiences as a child are at least partially responsible for the drive and desire she has to overcome all the obstacles in her way. People who experience adversity in life learn lessons from that. And it was perhaps the adversity that she experienced as a child that enabled her to take all of this on and extend her love to so many children, despite everything she's had to deal with. Lacey's story illuminates that we all have the ability to still show love, share love. Your wall hanging in your home that said love isn't love till you give it away. Lacey demonstrates that beautifully. It's not the disease, it's the person. And Lacey is an extraordinary person. I can't agree more, Mandy. Lacey really demonstrates that a rare disease cannot reduce a person's capacity to love. And the capacity to love is in each of us. But Lacey is someone who really knows how to give it away. Thank you, David. And thank you, Lacey, for sharing your amazing story of perseverance and motherhood in the face of disability. Thank you to Dr. Anna Wade for helping us understand the science of LGMD2I. To learn more about LGMD2I, visit the LGMD Awareness Foundation, the Speak Foundation, or Cure LGMD2I Foundation for additional information. Thank you to our producer, Amy Brooks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Thanks for listening today. I hope you'll join us for our next conversation on Rare.